You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Any of the relationships we have all take work, and none more than the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. Most of us will drop anything to go and help someone that we care deeply about, plus we'll go out of our way to try and treat other people well. But how often do we stop and give ourselves the same treatment? Is there something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be, something that's interfering with your happiness, or is stopping you from achieving your goals or wants? Hey, anything can come along and become a problem to you. Big or small, we're all different. But if any of this sounds familiar to you, then maybe better help is a solution that can help you. Because help is something that we all need at some point in our lives, and it's no stigma to reach out. BetterHelp is an online therapy offering you video, phone, even live chat sessions with your appointed therapist. So if you don't want to, you don't even have to see anyone on camera. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, is available worldwide, and you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist that's best suited to help you with your needs in under 48 hours. As I said before, we all need help sometimes, and personally, I've found that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need. So if you think you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see just why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around from my tiny corner in North Wales, me and the mog that can sleep like a log, Peeksy, delve into the annals of some of the most obscure, often forgotten or unfamiliar, sometimes nightmarish, sometimes scarcely believable, tales of true crime that I've scoured the length and breadth of the UK to bring to you. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, 
and the you are the kind and wonderful enthusiasts who keep spurring me on for more tales. It's fabulous having you joining me and the True Crime Enthusiast Cat. He does get called some right names, Pixie does, I tell you, but he loves the lot of them, rest assured. It's as fabulous as ever that you have, and I do hope that as you have done, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, back after a slight break from the regular show, and I have to say, going forward from here, expect that to be probably a bit of a monthly feature. One week a month will be Patreon episode week, so no regular enthusiast. I can't scrimp on anything, folks, and every episode that goes out gets the full attention. Coming nicely around to Patreon with that then. Massive thanks go out as always to both the returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout-outs here for Sam Bressington and the UK TV Crime Club Facebook group, William Tower, Anthony Shields, Lisa Gaydon, Joanne Morgan, Marianne Elizabeth Johnson, Alison Hawkes, Jill Innes, Susan Farrell, Carissa, Liz McDougall and Carl Craven, plus Ray Kennedy and Ashley Ives who have opted to annually support the show. Folks, you're all fabulous, thank you so much. I've hit the posty and stuff is out to some of you already. Plus you all have access to the full series of 30 plus unreleased bonus tales that being a patron supporter of the show gets you with the latest offering and a terribly angering tale it is too. Wicked Beyond Belief released just a few days ago. If you listening are intrigued and fancy yourself that little bit more enthusiastic to listen to, then it couldn't be simpler to do. You simply head over and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with a podcast suffix on the end, over on Patreon, or just head to any of the episode show notes and there you'll find the link that takes you right to it. It's always in there, same bat time, same bat channel. Quicker than me deciding that the masked singer is still shit. And come on, it's bloody dreadful, isn't it? It doesn't really even have any rhyme or reason. It's just nonsense. And for almost less than Roman Abramovich can spend on new Chelsea players right now, you can be a supporter too and hear in tales behind episodes such as Pierpoint's Last Drop or The Final Straw, the two-part Lost Girls of Liverpool, or the Samaritan and the Salvationist, to name just a couple of them, with the new one usually coming sometime each month, or never much longer than that. Or there may even be a bit of swag on its way to you, who knows. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a tale that when I've come to research it properly, I've decided has become a two-part tale. It's the best way to do it justice, I think. At the time the crime occurred, it was an incredibly high-profile one in the UK. It shocked and saddened the nation, and although it's a grim one, much like Andreas's story from last series in the episode Scarred, I hope that when the tale is taken into its full context following the second part, you'll come to see it's a bit of an uplifting one as well. It's a fabulous example of the power of the human spirit. And it goes some way to explaining why I've titled the episodes as I have. For our tale this time and the next, we head back to 2005 and down to Stockbroker Town, the UK county of Surrey, to a picturesque village named Little Buckham, where a senseless crime, it really was, nothing else will describe it better, in the spring of 2005 shocked the nation and brought a name to the lips of certainly the UK public. Abigail. 
so let's see what I'm on about. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the first of a two-part tale that I've entitled The April That Changed Abigail. The Abigail of our story was born one Abigail Hollins on the 25th of November 1978, one of four children born to lecturer Dr Martin Hollins and his wife, who is today life peer baroness Professor Sheila Hollins, a committed and practising Roman Catholic family with ties to the lay community of St Benedict, and who was raised a devout Roman Catholic in Wimbledon in South London. Educated at Ursuline Convent School in Wimbledon, where Abigail did a secondary schooling and completed her A-levels. One of her former teachers, Maria Hoban, who had taught her geography, in April 2005 remembered Abigail very fondly, saying, I remember her when she was here as a very able, popular and confident girl. She was a conscientious and hard-working student. Friends of the Hollins family told us this lunchtime what happened, and the staff are all very shocked to hear the news. The family are very much in our prayers and thoughts at this time. I know what you're thinking, but we'll get to it shortly. A capable and committed girl then, Abigail had followed in her parents' footsteps and had excelled through her schooling, eventually going on to study for and obtain a degree in anthropology. She'd gotten the travel bug after leaving university, however, and had travelled extensively across Africa a working trip mainly teaching English in the various countries that she found herself in. It was something that Abigail had loved doing, truly finding a calling and the happiness that comes with that if you get to do it. Indeed, happy is a good word to describe Abigail. Long before the days of Facebook or this TikTok bollocks that we have today, Abigail's life can be summed up by her posts on what was quite groundbreaking at the time of the dawn of most of us having the internet, Friends Reunited, which is that still even a thing today by the way, and if it is, is the only person who uses it, Tom from MySpace. But an example post of Abigail's from around the time is as follows. Did a Masters in Child Psychology on my return from Zambia and eventually found myself teaching English to refugees back in London. Meanwhile, met the love of my life, Benoit, got married, and now expecting a baby. Life just gets better and better. She had indeed met the man who went on to become her husband, an engineer named Benoit Wichels, at a Catholic youth group in the late 1990s that both of them belonged to. Both healthy and active people, sharing their faith and beliefs as well as interests in the outdoors. They soon became a couple and some years later were married on the 12th of October 2002 at Worth Abbey, a Benedictine monastery in West Sussex. By the end of 2003, the Witchells had welcomed their firstborn child into the world, a boy named Joseph, and were living at the sizeable and affluent property Maddox Farm a large building set back off Little Buckham Street in the Surrey village of the same name. It's a village variously described through researching as idyllic, peaceful and a great place to bring up children, and even 
the most peaceful corner of England. Set amongst acres of blissful countryside and conservation areas, and dotted with several historical and listed buildings. It's a close-knit community where everybody knows everybody. The sort of village where people play bridge, they go to church and they wave to each other as they pass on their bicycles. It's always sunny, with precision-cut lawns and flawless flowerbeds a source of pride in the area. Not a hint of a poundland nearby, and so posh that its residents don't go to the gym, they go to the James, you know what I mean. It was only shortly after this that another entry Abigail had made on Friends Reunited said, My friends all told me I would be mad to marry young, have a baby young, and live with my in-laws. But I've proved them all wrong, because I love being married, I love my baby, and I get on really well with my in-laws. I can't believe how fortunate I am. By 2005, Abigail, Benoit and Joseph lived at the time with Benoit's parents, James and Chantal Witchell, at Maddox Farm. A practical move that allowed the grandparents to spend time with their beloved grandson, as well as to afford the young couple childcare when it was needed, because both Benoit and Abigail worked, although Abigail had dropped down to only working part-time hours in a role of teaching English to immigrant women. Although all were happy with the living arrangements, it was never intended to be a long-term solution. It was a mere stopgap one, whilst Benoit and Abigail were doing the next best thing, having a home of their own built on the grounds of the farm, which work had begun on at the start of March 2005. So, the picture I've tried to build up here to you in Abigail and Benoit Witchell's is one of a couple who really do have it all. Totally in love with one another, who each doted on the firstborn child, successful, loved by their families, well liked by all who knew them, nothing but happy together and looking forward to the future. Hopefully, that's the impression you're left with. Sadly, fate can be an unbelievably cruel thing though, as I'm sure that you know, and as we shall come to hear. Wednesday the 20th of April 2005 was a day off from English teaching for Abigail and after helping out around the house had early that afternoon decided to make the most of the fine spring day and head out to take Joseph to a mother and toddler group that was held weekly at the former Messy Monkeys Nursery in the village. Dressing for the pleasant April weather, decked out in a multicoloured striped top, brown corduroy trousers and grey moccasin shoes, Abigail had set off with Joseph walking beside her, but with her pushing the blue and silver blue hooded buggy that he would undoubtedly end up being pushed back home in, for two miles is a hell of a long way for a 21 month old to walk isn't it? There were several familiar routes into Little Buckham Village itself from Maddox Farm that Abigail would optionally take, but a favoured one of hers was to walk down to nearby Burnham's Road where a lane leading off here offers a walker a delightful stroll through pleasant oak and wood, and she decided, as she set off that afternoon, that this was the way she and Joseph would walk back home. The mother and toddler group had finished by 3.15pm, and leaving here, Abigail and Joseph had set off down Little Buckham Street and turned right onto Lower Road, walking some distance down here before turning off right once again this time onto Water Lane, 
a semi-rural, semi-residential lane that borders a large garden centre on Lower Road named the Vineries, and at the top of which is a deer gate that leads onto the route that I described before, which would bring Abigail and Joseph out back near Maddox's farm. It was as familiar to her as any lane is to you in your home village. There were several people that she knew living in houses in the lane, and Abigail wouldn't have thought anything whatsoever about anything else really, except ensuring that Joseph was safe as he walked along with her. Nothing else would have really registered. Until she saw the car drive past, that is. A resident of Water Lane, and a friend of Abigail's mother-in-law Chantal, Robert Hall, recalled later, At about 4.15pm, I heard two loud screams, followed by a short one. Three or four minutes later, I was rung by another neighbour who said there'd been an attack in the alley. I rushed over to there and saw the woman with the boy. She was lying on the ground. She was in disarray, but she was still conscious then. My neighbour had wrapped a scarf around her neck, but because of the scarf, I couldn't tell if it was one or more stab wounds. She also had blood coming out of her nose and couldn't move her head, only her eyes. I kept reassuring her that the police and an ambulance would come soon. I tried to get a description of the man who'd attacked her, but she could only whisper, and I only got a very scant description of him. Her clothes looked ruffled and messy, and she was covered in mud. Her boy was covered in a degree of mud too. He was not hysterical, but he just looked absolutely numb. The other neighbour who's mentioned in this account, who remained unnamed throughout researching, had discovered an alarming sight only moments before Robert had. Just in front of a tall deer gate at the top of the lane, it's sealed due to a broken latch. A small child sat next to a buggy lying on its side. It took him a second or two to register, but he then noticed the prone form of a young woman lying almost underneath the upturned carriage and thinking there'd perhaps been an accident, or the young woman had taken ill and collapsed, immediately rushed over to help. It was when he removed the buggy and took full stock of the scene, however, that he realised that this had been no sudden illness. The young woman lay in a large pool of blood, it soaking her clothing as it cascaded from a vicious-looking wound to the back of her neck. She was barely conscious due to the blood loss, and quite unable to move any of her limbs. In fact, all she could move were her eyes. Immediately removing the scarf he had on at the time, he placed this over the wound on the woman's neck to stem the flow of blood and kept pressure on it, whilst telephoning another neighbour, Robert Hall, to request the emergency services be contacted and attend. Once Robert had ensured that they were on their way, he himself went out to offer assistance and to await the ambulance. Within 11 minutes of this call being placed, both police and an ambulance were on the scene, and as the gravely injured Abigail and Joseph were immediately rushed to the nearby Epsom Hospital, police sealed off Water Lane and established a crime scene there. For as Robert said in his recollection, this had been no accident, nor any sudden collapse. Abigail had been attacked, stabbed in the neck, and left for dead. Thankfully, Joseph was completely unharmed, although of course, he had witnessed the whole attack. Such horror doesn't bear thinking of, does it?
When Abigail arrived at Epsom Hospital, nursing staff were visibly shocked by her injuries and the massive blood loss, for Abigail was found to have suffered a horrific three-inch deep knife wound to the back of her neck. So severe were her injuries that every doctor and nurse in the A&E department were diverted from other patients to join in the fight to save her, and it was then that they discovered two things. Firstly, that the knife wound had almost severed Abigail's spinal cord, causing complete paralysis, and Epsom Hospital was largely unequipped to deal with such a severe and specific injury. So gravely injured was Abigail that she was even at the time read her last rites, with fears that neither she, nor the unborn baby she was carrying, would survive. For that was the second thing that was discovered that Abigail was about five weeks pregnant at the time she'd been attacked and left for dead. The couple hadn't even told their respective parents by then. Utterly tragic that, isn't it? Abigail was duly transferred from Epsom Hospital hours later down to St George's Hospital in Tooting in South London. Coincidentally, where her mother, Professor Sheila Hollins, was at the time a consultant psychiatrist, and where she was working that day, heading immediately to her daughter's bedside, as Benoit and other members of Abigail's family headed there too. Abigail did regain consciousness some time later, but remained in intensive care, surrounded by her loving family, completely paralysed and unable to even speak to them. But within a short time, she could communicate with them, as I shall come on to explain in a bit. Surrey Police had also placed a 24-hour police presence at St George's Hospital to reassure Abigail and her family. A spokesperson explained to the media the following day, Obviously there's a possibility, as in any other similar case, the offender might try to find her. Well, stranger things have happened, haven't they? The following day, at an assembled press conference attended by local and national media, chaired by senior officers and members of Abigail's family, the officer leading the investigation into the attack, codenamed Operation Flute, Detective Superintendent Adrian Harper, said, This is a particularly distressing attack. We're urging anyone to come forward who may have seen or heard anything. I would like to reassure the local community that this type of attack is extremely rare to this area and there have been no other similar incidents. We're committing considerable resources to this investigation and extra officers will be on patrol in the area during the day. Apart from her son Joseph, Abigail is the only person who saw her attacker and the information she may be able to give us will be crucial to our investigation. Both Abigail and her family have handled the terrible situation in which they find themselves with enormous dignity and courage, and I believe that Abigail will want to give us all the help that she can. Describing the scene of the attack, Detective Superintendent Harper added, This is a remote location, this is not somewhere you could go to by chance. The man could be local and may well have been seen by people in the area. The also-present then-Assistant Chief Constable of Surrey, Mark Rowley, added, People should put aside any loyalty to family, friends or criminal associates. This man must be caught. It's hard to imagine a more compelling picture of vulnerability and innocence 
than a mother with a toddler chased, attacked and left for dead. It is indeed, isn't it? How must something like that devastate you? Abigail's father-in-law, James, a former general practitioner, then said, Abigail is the most wonderful woman you can imagine. We border onto 300 acres of National Trust common land, which is a very popular walking area. She was walking her beautiful blonde-haired toddler son here along the footpath. Obviously, there was a commotion and she was stabbed. The exact extent of her injuries, I don't know yet, but obviously, she is extremely ill. It was a stab wound in the neck. It went right below the vertebrae. Exactly how much will regenerate itself is too early to tell. The damage to her spine means that it's likely she will be paralysed, but she should be able to talk. We're all Roman Catholics and have strong faith. We know that life is a temporary state and we live our lives accordingly. A miracle could happen and she could still fully recover. When asked about how Joseph was and who was caring for him, Abigail's father explained that the family were and he was staying with his grandparents, saying, I heard him wake this morning and his first calls were for his mum. Joseph must have seen everything, although he can't describe what he saw as he can only pronounce words like mummy and daddy. He doesn't have many words, but he saw what happened. What we have no idea of is what effect it's had on him. Only time will tell. When I left him this morning, it was his little sturdy self. He's a rambunctious little lad. We hope a large family will help mitigate not being able to see his mother for a while. Meanwhile, fear and disbelief had sunk into the village of Little Buckham, with residents shocked to the core that such horror had infiltrated their corner of England's garden. A friend of Abigail's who lived on Water Lane and who attended the Holy Spirit Church in Fetchum with her, Christine Coyle, told reporters, This is an idyllic place to live. There's no one around and it's a beautiful place to bring up children. Abigail is a lovely person and she's got a smashing boy. It's just horrific. It's frightening. Elaine Oliver, a neighbour of the Witchells who lived opposite the family's farmhouse conversion, added, we moved from Kingston to get away from things like that. It's a terrible shock, especially when it's so close to home. Abigail is such a beautiful girl. They're a lovely family. I'm devastated for them. We used to socialise with them when the children were small. We all help each other as neighbours without interfering in each other's lives. It's the sort of place where you leave the doors and windows open. I've always said that I feel safe here. I'm now locking my patio doors when I'm at home. Meanwhile, another family friend who declined to give her name told that Abigail was conscious but was communicating only by blinking, explaining, She's paralysed from the neck down but she is conscious. She can't say anything. Her mum is with her at the moment. She just communicates with blinks but she says she's happy. They go through the letters and she says H-A-P-P-Y. When they get to H, Abigail sort of blinks, and so on. Now you may think that happy is a strange choice of word to describe how she was feeling, so I'll just put that into proper context here, and it will give you a sense of this remarkable woman. By only two days after the attack, Abigail, 
although she couldn't move nor speak, had managed to communicate with her family using this system of blinking. The first message she'd spelled out was that she was indeed happy because her beloved Joseph was safe and he'd been unharmed. It's that kind of care in nature and strength of spirit that we're talking about here. By three days after the attack, Father Martin explained that his daughter had been communicating by facial expressions and appeared to know quite a lot about her condition. He told a press conference that day, I'm very, very proud of her, and most of all about how she's dealing with this. She's very seriously paralysed at the moment, she knows about that, but she's communicated that somehow she has the strength of spirit to cope. Most of all, we have such inspiration from Abigail's example. She still has a sense of humour as well. She's the Abigail we know. She's such a caring, people-focused person. With the strain clearly showing on his face though, he described the agony of waiting for news after the attack. We stayed there at the hospital through the night and going home in the morning, we were thinking she wouldn't survive. It was a less than 50% chance of survival. Fortunately, we have some hope, but initially we had absolutely no hope at all. Her condition is almost certainly long-term disabling. He then paid tribute to her husband, Benoit, and how he'd spent every night at her bedside, saying, He's the one we really, really want to support. He already has a very good communication with Abigail at the bedside. You can see the love in their relationship. He's with her and able to see what she's feeling. It's really hard. He's in such pain, and I really feel for him. Mr. Hollins then desperately appealed. Someone must know the person or persons responsible for the attack on Abigail, which has devastated her life and ours. We joined Surrey Police in appealing for anyone who saw anything suspicious to come forward. It's also possible someone has suspicions about a friend or relative. If that person is you, we urge you to tell the police to help them with their investigations. Now, the investigation was at the time off to an almost impossible start. No one had witnessed the attack except for Abigail, who at that point could barely communicate, and Joseph, who of course was just 21 months old. There was also no discernible motive. There was no evidence of an attempted sexual attack, and Abigail's purse, cards and mobile phone were all still in her bag, so it didn't seem to be a robbery gone wrong. Nevertheless, what could be done was done. The full Tommy Lee Jones speech from the fugitive, you know. Extensive house-to-house -house inquiries were carried out. Vehicle checkpoints were established and drivers stopped and questioned. A mass fingertip search of the lane and the surrounding areas was undertaken, with some 487 exhibits ultimately being retained for forensic examination. Records of all known offenders in the area with a history of violence were scrutinised. Everything that could be done in a standard serious criminal investigation, for this was considered an attempted murder, everything that could be done was done. And two days after the attack, police had their first breakthrough. Details had emerged from the house-to-house -house inquiries of a dark blue Peugeot car that had been seen speeding quite near to the crime scene just a few minutes before Abigail was attacked driven by a man described as shaven-haired and wearing a chunky gold necklace, and with a woman in the passenger seat, slim and blonde-haired. 
when an appeal was made for anyone with information concerning this vehicle to come forward, the same day, the 22nd of April, a 28-year-old man and a 29-year-old woman presented themselves voluntarily at Leatherhead Police Station and were arrested on suspicion of attempted murder, the blue Peugeot car being seized for forensic examination. However, the female passenger was released the same evening without charge and ultimately eliminated from the inquiry. The male suspect was held longer, however, before he too was ultimately released on police bail. He was also later ruled out as a suspect and eliminated from the inquiry. Three days after this arrest, however, on Monday, April the 25th, Abigail had managed to give police her first interview. Still unable to talk, Abigail had given a statement to police from a hospital bed at St. George's by using a combination of blinking at letters of the alphabet as they were gone through in sequence to spell words and mouthing yes or no answers. The interview that day had lasted some six hours, which reportedly the remarkable woman had firmly insisted upon, despite how much something like that must have exhausted her to do. It was the same again the following day, for the same length of time, once again at her insistence, and by this time, Abigail was able to painstakingly detail her ordeal and describe her attacker to police. Surrey police said later that she was also shown a video retracing her steps down the quiet country lane where she was stabbed. These two interviews were the breakthrough that police desperately needed. Interviewed on BBC Radio 5 Live the following day, for this crime had shocked the nation and it dominated the news and media reports at the time, I remember it vividly. Detective Superintendent Adrian Harper said that as a result of them, police had confirmed enough information directly from Abigail that they no longer had to rely on second-hand evidence from witnesses and residents of the village, saying that a statement had, a quote, changed the focus of the inquiry. Mr Harper also added that newspaper reports suggesting that police knew who had attacked Abigail were incorrect, saying, I really don't know where that's come from. To suggest that is ridiculous. This speculation actually is unhelpful to my investigation. At a packed press conference held later that afternoon, Detective Superintendent Harper could, for the first time, outline the fullest picture yet of what had happened the previous Wednesday, based on Abigail's own recollections. Abigail had told officers that she first saw her attacker in a blue four-door estate car at 3.45pm as she and Joseph walked along the public footpath. She said the vehicle drove towards her and passed her and that she and the driver looked at each other. Mr Harper went on. At that point, Abigail started to feel uneasy. About three quarters of the way along the track, she turned and saw the same car had pulled up behind her. He said the man had gotten out of the car and was then coming towards her. At this point, she started to panic, so she began running along the footpath with Joseph still in his buggy. Abigail said that some 300 yards along the path, she reached a tall deer gate, however, had to leave the buggy and step in front of it to try and open the gate, the latch being broken from that side. As she reached through to try and undo it, and as she struggled to open it, she heard the man behind her tell her in a deep voice 
that she dropped her purse. She turned around and saw the man had taken hold of Joseph and was holding the knife to his throat. He called to Abigail to come towards him. He then grabbed hold of her by the hair and held her forcefully down to the ground. As he did so, he stabbed her once in the back of the neck with a knife. He then pushed the buggy on top of Abigail and ran off. He continued, He's between 5 foot 10 inches and 6 foot 4 inches tall and she's very precise about that because he's taller than her and smaller than her husband. He's a male, white, aged between 20 and 35 years old and on the day he was wearing dark clothing. He has quite short dark hair which is either curly or wavy but quite scruffy, a long thin face with prominent cheekbones and is pale with dark bags under his eyes. He was wearing two silver earrings, the hoops three quarters of an inch roughly in diameter and quite thick. He may have more earrings, but she's very particular about at least one in each ear. Abigail had further told police she believed the man was under the influence of drink or drugs. Mr Harper said, The appeal I want to make is quite precise. We could easily be overwhelmed by information that would hamper the inquiry rather than help it. What we need is very specific. Do you know a man who fits this description, who has access to a blue estate car, and who could have been in the Bookham area on the afternoon of Wednesday the 20th of April? If you know anyone who fits this profile, if you live with him or he's your child, you must come forward to us. He's an extremely dangerous offender. Anyone who is prepared to threaten a young child and then try to kill their mother is capable of anything and a danger to anyone who comes into contact with him, no matter who they are. Please do not approach him, but contact Surrey Police with information, or call 999 if you know where he is. Detailing the investigation up to that point, he told reporters how Abigail was continuing to help the police with information she could recall about the attack, and that plans were in place to show her drawings on a laptop and erect a plasma screen to help them compile a clearer picture of the knife man, who they were working on a CD fit image of, and of the tatty blue estate car that she saw him driving. The 21-month-old son, Joseph, had acted out events to specially trained police officers, and there was also the possibility that he would be further interviewed, and a reconstruction of her walk from the mother and toddler group to the lane where she was stabbed was planned for the coming weeks. Officers from Operation Flute, meanwhile, had already drawn up a list of possible names which they were working through and were running through the National Criminal Operations Faculty Database, though they were still looking for more, and a criminal profiler was helping them work on the type of person they were looking for, with the initial findings being someone with a definite history of violence, a strong connection to the local area and knowledge of its crisscrossing paths and shortcuts and one with ready access to a blue car. Nothing like stating the obvious there, is that it sounds like something that the bloody crime pundits Dave or Emma would come up with that does. And I'm sure if you're in the UK, then you know exactly who I mean there. The very next day, a description of this individual Abigail had described was on the front of every national newspaper, alongside the picture of Abigail and Joseph that's become synonymous with the case the one that's up there on the show's Instagram page now. And the inevitable comparisons were made between Abigail's attack 
and the still as then unsolved murder of Rachel Nickell. Due to the similarities between the two, women brutally attacked with a knife in a rural area in front of their small child are not too far apart geographically. We of course know, thanks to the maniac arc, that Rachel's killer was actually at the time of the attack securely in Broadmoor, but that's a completely different tale altogether. Let's not raise Napper again, head back to Maniac, or listen to Maniac if you've not done already. The following day, Wednesday the 27th of April, an unemployed mechanic from the town of New Addington in South London, who had a previous criminal record for burglary and drug use, 25-year-old Terry Barnes, was arrested at his home on suspicion of the attack, although how police were led to him exactly isn't reported. What is reported is that he strongly fitted the physical description that had been given by Abigail, had no alibi for the time of the attack a week previously, and had access to a blue Peugeot car. It was a suspect that police got especially excited about. The following day, a team of forensic officers removed countless items from Barnes' terraced home in Croydon, and a photograph of Barnes was one of some 12 that were shown to Abigail in a bedside identity parade. Referred to as Suspect A at the time, Barnes was picked out by Abigail alongside one other who it may have been possible was her attacker, although the other man was a completely innocent volunteer only chosen for his likeness. However, she ultimately picked out this other man in the final runoff, and after two days of intensive questioning, Barnes was released. He was, however, immediately rearrested at Staines Police Station, this time in connection with breach of bail on burglary offences, and was remanded in custody by Guildford Magistrates Court on Saturday, the 30th of April, due to appear at Lewes Crown Court on August the 12th, charged with two counts of burglary. I bet he'd had better weeks, eh? Now, by this time, police claimed that although no charges had been brought, they'd not ruled Barnes out of their inquiries, but also said that as a result of their appeals, they'd been given some 32 names by members of the public, including a couple by more than one person, and were focusing their investigation on six key suspects. He was very firmly one of the favourites, but now, if he were to be questioned again, he would have to be rearrested. Detective Superintendent Harper explained, The case presents very complex forensic issues which are being progressed as quickly as possible, but which will nevertheless take some weeks to resolve, even using the latest and most advanced techniques. It is not possible to keep this man in custody whilst we resolve these inquiries. He explained that these inquiries involved a large amount of material from the lane where the attack happened, where officers had seized some 468 exhibits from, many of which had been sent for further testing, saying, It can take either days or weeks, depending on whether the exhibit in question is straightforward fingerprints, or something with a low-profile DNA, which would have to be magnified to view any valid results. He did repeat the appeal for information about a blue car which the attacker was said to have been driving, although confirmed that two such vehicles had already been seized and were being forensically examined. Abigail, he said, would also be shown colour cards and photographs of different models of cars to try to discover the exact vehicle her attacker was driving. 
We cannot say with certainty whether it is a dark blue estate car as originally described by Abigail, he said. By 12 days into the inquiry, the 100-strong team of officers working on the case had made some 605 separate inquiries, taken more than 100 statements, and as we've said, seized 468 exhibits. The incident room at Staines Police Station had received more than 700 calls, some of which, according to Detective Superintendent Harper, had generated very significant lines of inquiry. He told the Daily Mail newspaper, We do have at least two people whom we regard as serious suspects in this case, and another 38 names that we are also following up. However, we are not yet in a position where we can prove beyond all reasonable doubt who was responsible for this attack, which left Abigail with such dreadful, life-altering injuries. Now, we have heard of one suspect, Terry Barnes, but the other? Well, by this time, stuff is starting to seriously go on in the background, but which I won't go into just yet, that's why this is a two-part tale, of course. Whilst this stuff was going on in the background, it was never in any doubt that such a high-profile case would feature on it any way other than being the lead story in the edition, and four weeks after the horrific attack, Abigail's tragic story was indeed the lead item on the May 2005 edition of Crime Watch UK. That's this show that used to be on doing good, but isn't anymore, so shit like Bridge of Lies with Ross Kemp can be. As an aside, I saw this briefly for the first time the other day, and I almost wanted to be dead. I almost had a nosebleed, it was such bollocks. Back of the net BBC, but I digress. Benoit Wichels himself appeared on the Crime Watch broadcast, where he was interviewed by then Crime Watch presenter Fiona Bruce about the attack, about Abigail's injuries and her prognosis, and how the family was coping with coming to terms with the tragic events. Although frustratingly, the Crime Watch broadcast isn't one of the many that's available to online to view, I found through researching that a transcript of the interview was available. Now, the interview itself is somewhat lengthy but it is quite a remarkable one that I wanted to share as fully as I can do, and which is reproduced here as follows, only slightly edited. Fiona Bruce, how are you coping, Benoit? Well, it's just based on her condition three weeks ago, what I was told then. If I base it on that, then it's just, we just feel very lucky and very blessed because she's fully present as herself, and that's just great to see, and you know, and it's a great joy, you can see her face when she sees Joseph, and Joseph's coping amazingly, and I would say he's the real kind of joy in, in the family, I suppose. And obviously we, we want to try and keep his life as stable and as normal as possible for him, not to upset him too much. And are you going to see her every day? Do you take Joseph in every day? We get Joseph in there every day to try and balance it out with his meals and naps and things, but yes, he's been able to see her every day so far. And there must have been times when you thought she wasn't going to make it. Well, yeah, you know, when you know somebody has been so fit and active and you know really enjoyed the outdoor life and trying to get everywhere kind of walking and cycling as much as we could. Yeah, it's obviously not something I've had to think about. But that first evening on Wednesday the 20th, it was just very difficult for any doctors to come up with anything definitive. What they knew was that she had a wound at the back of her neck 
but how serious it was they didn't know. But obviously the opinions ranged from absolutely critical to, well, she may well be stable, not at the moment, but, you know, quite soon. And that's when they were deciding whether she needed to have, or that she did need to have an MRI scan. And I think that the nearest place they could do that was at the Atkinson Morley in St. George's. So there was concern about moving her from Epsom because she was still quite critical. But luckily, from what we can tell, the move went okay. That was about probably six or seven hours after, after the attacks. Fiona Bruce. I mean, we've read things in the paper, you know, about Abigail communicating through blinking and this kind of thing. It's hard for anyone to imagine what that must be like and, and the upheaval in your lives. How are you coping with all that? I suppose, like I said, it's very much day by day. It's trying to arrange who's going to be with Abby when. Obviously with Joseph as well. We can only plan that day by day really. But I think just seeing her with such a strong character and that she's so happy that Joseph is safe and well. That gives us great comfort obviously. And you know, it's day by day and so you don't really have time to think about how it used to be I suppose. It's very much my expectation is that I'm going to go in and I'll be able to talk to Abigail about my day and how it's been going with her. And between trying to understand our son, he has a quite basic vocabulary, and Abigail, who's trying to lip-read things, we're getting much better. The blinking, now I think we must have gotten a lot better at lip-reading because we haven't had to do the blinking thing for a couple of days. What are your feelings towards the person who did this to Abby? My personal feelings are that I we haven't haven't really thought much about it. You know, life is just a lottery and this could have so easily happened as it does to so many people through a car accident or through, you know, some sort of illness. It's just that something which has happened to us. But to be honest, I haven't thought much about the attacker. Obviously, you know, whoever did it needs help and it would be absolutely tragic if this was to happen again to somebody. So you know, maybe the reason I'm here talking to you is so that, you know, this this person can be found and something can be done to help them some way. I mean, we haven't had any feelings of, you know, kind of anger. It's just a case of, you know, helping out this person really to. Fiona Bruce. I mean, some people will find that remarkable. You say you haven't got feelings of anger towards this person. Benoit. Well, maybe it will come. I don't know. But at the moment, it's just a case of, it's obviously very sad, someone that, that's probably suffered in their lives, and we've just got to see what we can do as a society to help them. Fiona Bruce. And Abby feels the same, does she? Benoit. Yes, I think so. We haven't really spoken about the attack other than the police interviews. I suppose, obviously, obviously she's been thinking, you know, why did this happen to me? Why am I suffering like this? But she certainly hasn't communicated to me who is this person that did this to me? Because I really want to strangle their neck or whatever. Fiona Bruce. I mean, she'd be forgiven for saying that in a lot of people's eyes, this person held a knife to your son's throat. You have this terrible effect on your wife. And yet you're talking about him in a very compassionate and very forgiving way. Benoit. Well, yes, thank God that our son's well. That was the reason her first word that she blinked was happy because she was so relieved that he'd come out of it unscathed physically, yes. What would you say to people who will be listening to you now, and who might know something, or indeed the attacker himself, but haven't come forward yet? 
Like I said, it would be absolutely tragic if this person did this to somebody else, you know. So it's a case of let's just make sure that, you know, so make sure that we find him so that we can give him the support that he needs. Jonah Bruce. I mean, people will find it incredible that you're saying, let's find him so we can give him the support that he needs. You know he very nearly killed Abigail. It's a miracle he didn't. Yes, absolutely. And he held a knife to Joseph's throat, but you want to give him support, not punishment, or a bit of both? No, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to pass any judgment. I think it's remarkable that you, for many people, in a good way obviously, it's remarkable that you can talk in such a forgiving and tolerant way about someone who has done something so terrible to your family. I mean, what, what, how are you able to do that? Benoit. Well, I suppose that the suffering that we're going through, yet it is, it's really hard, and I think maybe had Abigail died, or were she to have suffered quite severe brain damage, maybe I'd be spending a lot more time not having her because we work very much as a team. Just to talk about our lives and stuff, that would have been a massive loss to me. But Abby is still there, she's still present, and that's just a tremendous relief, and we feel very blessed and lucky that she is. And yes, we're going to suffer obviously as a family. It may well be that she's going to be paralysed from the neck down for life. But, you know, people live wonderful lives paralysed from the neck down. Our expectations have had to change drastically in the last three weeks. But that's not to say that we're not still going to live peaceful lives with a family. Fiona Bruce. What would you say to people who are listening to the show now who might know something, maybe even the attacker himself? who haven't yet come forward with information. Benoit Well, no doubt the police will say, you know, don't approach him and call this number, and I suppose I'd say the same thing, just so that this doesn't really happen again through this guy. Just any slightest suspicion that they may have had, it's important to just report that, even if you think it's not going to be useful or relevant. That's what I've been told by the police, you know, any bit of information that you can think of, just just tell the right people and, and let them decide whether or not it's important. But Abby has quite a clear image in her, in her mind of the attacker, and she has quite a clear image of the car he was driving as well. So you know, hopefully, that will jog people's memories and enable him to be, to be found, and then we'll see. Now I know that's a bit lengthy, isn't it, eh? That interview aired on the 18th of May, just four weeks after the attack, and... It's quite remarkable, isn't it? I was a bit blown away by what a humbling and inspiring man Benoit Wichels is. The Crime Watch reconstruction prompted some 58 calls to the studio and an equal amount to the incident room in Surrey, out of which two potential new lines of inquiry emerged. Detective Superintendent Harper explained following this. We've had one important call from Hythe in Kent, a guy who thinks he may have been in the area at the right time and saw the attacker fleeing. This caller was however later identified as a hoaxer, as the number and address that he had given were found not to exist when they were checked. Why people do things like that, it just boggles my mind. What absolutely parasitic scum they are to do things like that. It's so callous, isn't it? The second line of inquiry emerged from a female caller from Crawley in Sussex who called the studio to say that the day before Abigail had been attacked, 
she'd been frightened by a man in a light blue estate car who had also followed her, with Detective Superintendent Harper saying of this, It was a different police area, but Little Buckham is not that far away. We don't know the relevance at this time, but we are going to follow that up, of course. Now, there were different bits of this case that my mind kept going back to a trilogy that I did a few series ago on The Enthusiast, Margaret, Murder and the Missing Motive. I was quite struck by the women being frightened by men in cars, the vicious knife attack, yet it was proper ringing bells for me, so go back and have a listen following this, and I might touch again upon the Margaret trilogy, as I've called it, next time around. However, this sighting in Sussex was a line of inquiry that was ultimately looked at and discounted, possibly because by that time, as I said before, stuff is going on in the background of Operation Flute, and despite any information received as a result of Crime Watch, police still had those two very firm suspects a lot closer to home, figuratively speaking. They were still evidently strong by the 31st of May, six weeks after the attack, when it was reported that Surrey police had brought in specialist tracker dogs that can detect weeks-old smells to search the area of the attack, searches that followed the receipt of new information received and were for outstanding evidence, including the weapon used by the attacker. The specialist tracker dogs, of which there were only a small number in the UK, and which had last been used in Surrey in 2002 during the search for missing Walton-on-Thames schoolgirl Millie Dowler, belonged to the police forces of South Yorkshire and Dovid Powys, and included Keeler, who pop trivia quiz at the time was the UK's top-earning police dog, that when costs of using it were added up, it cost in each force some £570 plus expenses for a use per day came to some £200,000 per year, an amount dwarfing the wage of South Yorkshire's chief constable. Four such dogs, one trained to sniff out weeks-old traces of human blood, spent nine hours searching extensively the area where Abigail was attacked, but found no discarded weapon, nothing physical. However, detectives stressed that this did not alter the focus of the investigation any, the Surrey police spokesperson saying if we'd found the weapon that would have been great but the fact that we've not found anything does not alter the status of our suspects park that for next time meanwhile what of the focus of our tale Abigail two weeks after the attack she'd been transferred from St George's Hospital to a specialist spinal injuries unit at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore in northwest London, a 24-bed unit which at the time was one of only 11 in the UK designated to treat people with spinal cord injuries. She'd been helping officers as best as she could do when the gruelling interviews with her had to be suspended for some days due to the devastation and upset Abigail felt with the sudden death of her elderly grandmother, Monica Kelly, on the 9th of May, sadly the second grandparent she'd lost within some six weeks. However, with her awe-inspiring spirit, by just over a week later, the same day that Benoit was giving such a remarkable interview on Crime Watch, Abigail was able to make a public statement for the first time concerning her improving physical condition saying that she could now breathe on her own and even talk for short periods. 
A photograph released the same day of Abigail in a hospital bed showed Benoit and Joseph anointing her with holy water from brought from Lourdes, the Catholic shrine to the Virgin Mary in France. By the end of the following month, there were more details of her recovery to come. Abigail was reportedly now able to breathe without a ventilator, was able to eat, speak, move her arm and hand slightly, and even sit in a wheelchair for short periods. The orthopaedic hospital treating her was quoted as her recovering in small but important ways, with its chief executive, Andrew Woodhead, telling how staff were encouraged by her bravery and the way the devout Catholic cheerfully coped with her injuries, both physically and mentally, saying, The feeling is that Abigail is making really good progress. Her morale is fantastic, and I know that's partly helped by the support from her friends and family and the public in general as well as from the staff here in Stanmore. In a statement issued the same day, Abigail said, I can breathe and speak on my own for short periods. I have sensation over most of my body, and the pain is less now. The staff here are wonderful, and I am making progress every day. I can move my head, but as yet, I cannot move my arms and legs. She added, Please pass on my thanks to everyone for their support and prayers. God is doing beautiful things. It was also reported that Abigail's unborn baby was, I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear, developing completely normally and was doing well, with her being monitored regularly by a midwife and an obstetrician over the long months she was to spend in hospital. It was more than six months after the attack, on the 3rd of November 2005, that she was discharged from hospital, with her family saying her morale was, I quote, as good as ever. She released a statement thanking hospital staff who'd looked after her for their enthusiasm and care, telling them that they'd given her confidence to expect more improvement in the future. Within eight days, though, she was back in St. George's Hospital in Tooting, but this time for a much happier reason, to give birth to her second son, Dominic Adrian, who was born five weeks early, weighing five pounds six ounces, on Friday the 11th of November. A statement issued by a family spokesperson said that Dominic had arrived via a natural birth with very little assistance, did not require a caesarean section, and with help to support a newborn, Abigail had even managed to start breastfeeding him successfully. It went on to explain that Dominic meant of the Lord, and that Adrian was a family name, adding, Joseph is enjoying being a big brother and is giving Dominic lots of cuddles. Abigail, who would remain in hospital for several days following the birth, said, I've found great strength and comfort in carrying this child over the past few months, and it's such a blessing and a joy to now finally see him face to face, with Benoit adding, once again, the healthcare professionals here at St. George's have been so attentive and generous. We're really looking forward to an exciting homecoming once more, except now with another beautiful son and brother for Joseph. The then two-year-old Joseph, meanwhile, greeted the birth in his own way. Baby come out, he told his parents. After a week spent in hospital, mother and baby were discharged and allowed to go back home to the house that Benoit had built for them on the grounds of Maddox Farm, 
the one that had now been specially adapted to cater for Abigail's needs. The same day, Dominic was baptised at a family service in a converted chapel in the grounds of the family home by priest Father Marie-Dominique Philippe, a French Dominican priest who was a friend of the family. Pictures of the clearly happy family, unfazed by Abigail's need for ongoing therapy and access to NHS carers 24 hours a day, appeared in the national press the following day, with a spokesperson for the Witchells saying that the picture represented a new, happier chapter in the family's life. They are absolutely thrilled with a new baby, and so pleased everything has gone well. It is almost a conclusion of a nightmare time. Since the CPS report was published, that section of their life has been closed, and they are now taking a positive step forward. The CPS report mentioned here was the culmination of developments which the nation had followed for months, because, dotted throughout the tale thus far, you may have heard me reference another suspect that police had, apart from Suspect Day. And if you thought the tale may have jumped in part somewhat, well again, there's a reason that I've wrote it as a how. The file on Abigail's attempted murder has today long been closed, with at the moment no current plans to reopen it, because back in November 2005, round about the same time Abigail, Benoit and their families were thanking God for the miracle that was Dominic, Surrey police had boldly announced at a press conference, the case is closed. Oh yes except that no trial had taken place and there was no one languishing in a cell as a result of it. And had the case come to court today, I don't even know it's a statement that they could make. It would be proper bold to do so. Which I shall explain all to you in the second part of the tale, because that's a perfect place to leave it for now. It's been a tale I long had on the radar this one. One that I hope you found interesting and informative, with a hell of a lot more to come with it yet. And in hindsight really, it's one I think it would have been a perfect collaboration between myself and Jess Carter. By the way, which I'm thrilled to say as well, that upcoming later this series is the next collaboration between me and Jess. Which we haven't, well officially anyway, for a few series. Though I know she created All Shop and No Sex last time around and chipped in integrally during the thriller arc, but this one will be our tried and tested listen to Jess, listen to me lark, like Tattingstone and Josephine before them. I don't know what case it is yet we're covering, I just know that whatever it is, it's going down like Chinatown. But that's then, and this is now, and we've umpteen cases before that one, including part two of the April that changed Abigail, which will be coming to you next Truer Crime Thursday or next, depending on when you're listening to this, of course. I thank you all so very kindly for joining me here today for the first part of the tale, and I look forward to you joining me for the second part, or as I just said before, next, as most of you probably do. We're all so spoilt in the days of binging now, aren't we? And I don't blame you, I'd be the exact same. Any wrap-up on my own thoughts on the tale will, of course, be saved for the end of it all. So all that remains for me to say here is that I'm off to put the finishing touches to it now. I have been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and stay safe, and goodbye for now.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.